business for today. Um, as I said, it's a great pleasure to introduce Cecile Fabra. She'll be known to many of you. Uh, she did her doctorate at this university. She then went to the LSE and from there she took a chair at Edinburgh University until we were very, very fortunate to lure her back down um, to Oxford. I hope she doesn't regret that move too much. I mean, every year. Um, many of you will know her work. She's worked very, very widely in philosophical ethics and political theory. Um, uh, her books include Social Rights Under the Constitution, Government and the Decent Life, OUP 2000, Whose Body Is It Anyway, Justice and the Integrity of the Person, OUP 2006, and Justice in a Changing World, um, Cambridge Policy Press, Press 2007. She has also written very broadly on the ethics of war. She flies the flag for really rigorous, insightful, analytical philosophy, despite the fact that she is, in fact, French. Um, so, uh, Not anymore. I, I well, 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 I'll hand it over to Cecile. And her title today, um, also very, very topical, is Killing in yes. Humanitarian Wars. Thank you, David, for this lovely uh, introduction. Uh, very topical indeed. I, I came within a hair's breadth of giving that talk and feel very lucky I didn't have to, in fact. Um, on the morning when uh, the French and the British were preparing to invade Libya. Um, so it is, it is, although it's a few weeks you know, now from that point, um, it is you know, very topical indeed. Um, now there is a, a broad uh, consensus amongst war ethicists that military intervention in the affairs of another country is sometimes you know, justified, particularly when that country's regime is guilty of grievous human rights violations against its own population. So if you cast your mind back you know, to a few weeks ago, um, there did seem to be some broad consensus on the view that if we were to intervene in Libya, the regime itself, Gaddafi's regime itself, could not claim to be wronged by the interveners. There might have been other reasons as to why we shouldn't go in, such as effectiveness, for example. But the idea that Gaddafi and his supporters had a claim not to be acted against, that idea you know, found little credence, really, in the relevant philosophical, political, perhaps military you know, circles. I'm not entirely happy with existing arguments in the philosophical literature in favor of humanitarian intervention, and my main source of unhappiness um, is this, that war, to say something which is utterly banal, but which, like many banal things, tends to be forgotten, war is about killing. So when we justify a war of military intervention, we do have to justify the permissibility of killing some people in a target in a community. My task this afternoon is to try to provide precisely such a justification for humanitarian intervention. And I proceed in two steps. First, I defend the right to wage such a war. And then I tackle some of the issues raised by killing in wars of intervention. Now, before I begin, I do need to issue two caveats or preliminary remarks on your handout. I have a background definition of a war of intervention, which I set out here, an agent, which henceforth I shall call IP for intervening party, can be described as waging a humanitarian war against the political community, henceforth TP for target party, if, and I have a number of conditions, it uses large-scale military force against TP, over which it has no prima facie jurisdiction, and if it uses such force without the consent of TP's regime, 
in order to stop ongoing human rights violations by that regime and its supporters carried out against some members of TP. I think it's a fairly uncontroversial uh, definition of uh, what we mean by a war of humanitarian intervention. A much more controversial bit of background which I need to uh, put in place before proceeding is what I call the background ethics of war. And to summarize here, soldiers are not morally on a par, I submit, once the war has started. On the contrary, the justness of their war at Bellum has decisive weight when determining whether they have the right to kill enemy soldiers in Bellum. So I need to, to do a bit of you know, explaining here for those of you who are not perhaps familiar with this particular debate. In mainstream just war ethics, it is entirely appropriate to reach the judgment that a given belligerent did not have a just cause for going to war. So on that view, it is entirely appropriate to reach the judgment that, for example, Germany did not have a just cause for invading Poland on the 1st of September 1939. Germany's war was unjust at Belgium. On the mainstream view, however, once the war has started, soldiers on opposing sides of the conflict are morally on the par in the sense that they are equally at liberty to kill one another. On the mainstream view, on the 2nd of September 1939, German soldiers are equally at liberty to kill Polish soldiers and vice versa. The fact that ex passes are, Germany does not have a just cause for being to war. The fact that Germany's invasion of Poland is wrongful does not diminish the right that German soldiers have to kill Polish soldiers any more than the fact that Poland has exercised a just cause for defending itself gives its soldiers, Polish soldiers, a greater right to defend their lives against German soldiers. That is the mainstream view, and it is in fact the view that is enshrined in the international laws of war. I disagree with that view. A number of philosophers, and Davids in particular, have argued that on the contrary, whether or not the war is just ad bellum, has decisive weight for deciding whether or not soldiers are at liberty to kill enemy soldiers. On that alternative you know, account, German soldiers, precisely because Germany's invasion of Poland is wrongful, are not at liberty to kill Polish soldiers. By contrast, Polish soldiers, precisely because Poland has a just cause in defending itself with its Germany, are at liberty to kill German soldiers in defense of their lives. On that alternative account, and it is you know, relevant for the argument to follow, the ethics of killing in war are very closely aligned, as it were, to the ethics of private you know, defensive killing. And this is the view which I take for granted here at the start of my argument, and I shall come back to it in a second. So with those two bits of background you know, on the table, at this, as it were, let me now turn section two on your handout to defining the right to wage a war of humanitarian intervention. Because, as I've just noted, the ethics of war on my account are fairly closely aligned to the ethics of killing in private cases, I should like, as a preliminary step, step one, to defend the right to kill in self-defense in broad terms. On what grounds, if any at all, do agents have the right to kill other agents in self-defense? Now, the most common justifications for the right to kill in self-defense are so-called agent-neutral 
justifications. On those views, the permission and the right to kill are justified by looking to facts about the attacker. For example, the fact that he's morally responsible for posing a threat to us, the fact that he poses such a threat in the first instance. So suppose that an attacker now were to bust into the room armed with a gun and were to start shooting at me, on those agent-neutral justifications for permission or the right to kill in self-defense, the reason why I have the right or I may kill the attacker is just that he's posing a threat to me or that he's morally responsible for this such a threat to me. It is something about him that justifies the permission to kill him. Now, I don't find those arguments very convincing because, in my view, they overlook something which, the feature of the situation, if you will, which I believe is absolutely crucial, which is that in this fortunately hypothetical example, when we have an attacker busting into the room, shooting at me, it is my life which is at stake. It's not yours, it's mine. And it seems to me absolutely crucial never to recite of the fact that I have a stake in my survival which you lack. Those justifications for the permission and the right to kill in self-defense are standardly called agent relative. They are relative to some agents, but not necessarily to others. And in that particular case, they are relative to me. To repeat, it is my life, not yours, which is at stake. And the reason in turn why the fact that my life is at stake may give me a permission, indeed a right to hear the attacker, you know, is this fairly standardly. We have a personal prerogative to show partiality to our own interests. For me to say, or let me start again, for you to say to me, you may not kill your attacker in self-defense will be tantamount to putting it under a duty to sacrifice my life for the sake of preserving his. But I don't think that agents generally, particularly agents who are not responsible in any way for the conflict between lives, are under a duty to sacrifice their interests in general and their interest in survival in particular for the sake of protecting the life of the attacker. After all, he is the one bursting into the room with a gun trying to kill me. It seems to me, in other words, that this particular value, the value of greater partiality, permissible partiality towards one's own interests as opposed to the interests of others, does explain why it is the case that I clearly may kill this attacker in self-defense. It is not just the fact that he's posing a threat in general. It is the fact that he's posing a threat to me. How, step two, does that apply if it does apply at all to rescue killings? Well, some people would argue that it doesn't apply at all. They would say that agent relative, victim, if you will, relative justifications for self-defensive killing do not in fact work for rescue killing. Why? Well, if the reason why I make you the attacker in self-defense is that it is my life which is at stake, it's very hard to see how that could give you a permission to kill him in my defense. Your life is not at stake. You, know, you are a neutral bystander in, in this particular conflict. This objection to agent relative justification for self-defensive killings is the strongest of the many objections which have been leveled against that strategy. The argument goes, partiality is all very well, but you cannot justify 
killing in defense of others. I believe, on the other hand, that we can defend killing in defense of others, which is what I set out solution in step two on your handout. And the argument goes like this. I argued earlier that I have a special stake in my survival. I have a special interest in surviving the attack. I also suggested that the importance <coughs> to me of that interest promotion, as it were, grants me a permission, indeed a right, to kill my attacker in self-defense. I'm invoking here a fairly standard account of what it means to have a right, well, that you have a right means that we have an interest which is important enough in amongst other things, imposing some duties upon other people. On that fairly standard account of interest, to say that I have a right to, for example, freedom of speech, is to say that I have an interest in freedom of speech which is weighty enough to impose on third parties a duty to let me speak. Mutatis mutandis, to say that I have a right to kill my attacker in self-defense is to say that my interest in surviving this particular attack is sufficiently important to impose on third parties, in fact, including the attacker himself, a duty not to interfere with my self-defensive steps. And it is also important enough to make it morally permissible for me to protect my life in this particular way. Now, interests are not merely protected by liberties or permissions and rights, on the other hand. They are also protected by what we call in analytical jurisprudence, Wolfenden powers. Wolfenden is this very well-known uh, American legal uh, philosopher and uh, lawyer who insisted in a seminal article beginning of the 20th century that we should separate out powers from liberties from claims. Powers are to be understood as the ability to change our moral and or legal relationship to other people by giving them some of our rights and permissions. So to illustrate, David asked me to use you know, quick examples to illustrate those points. So here is a quick example. I'm the legitimate owner of that pen. That means that I have a set of claims and permissions with respect to that pen. I'm permitted to write notes you know, on my handout. I have a right against you that you do not forcibly interfere with my use of that pen by, for example, grabbing my wrist. But my interest in disposing of this pen as I wish is also protected by a power to, for example, give you that pen in virtue of which you would acquire over this pen all the rights, permissions, and so on which I now have. Gift, selling, promising are the paradigmatic examples you know, of powers. Well, it seems to me that on the interest account, a victim's interest in surviving an attacker ought to be protected not merely by the permission to kill the attacker, indeed not merely by a right to kill the attacker, but also by a power to transfer to potential rescuers that very same permission and right. So to go back to the earlier example, if an attacker busts into the room armed with a gun and starts shooting at me, my interest in my survival is protected not merely by the permission given to me to kill the attacker, but also by a power to transfer to David my permission and my right to kill in my own defense, should I, for example, become unable to defend my own life. I summarize you know, the, uh, the claim 
uh, on the other, towards the bottom of page one, paragraph two in section two, the victim's interest in protecting her fundamental interest against culpable attackers not only is protected by a right to kill the attacker, which imposes on other agents a duty not to intervene on his behalf, it is also protected by her failure power to transfer that right to potential rescuers so that they too acquire the right to kill the attacker on behalf of the victim. And this, I think, is quite a appealing way of understanding the right to wage a war of intervention. Step three, assume that some members of the political community are you know, victims of severe rights violations, the kind which, to use the standard phrase now, shock the conscience of mankind, either at the hands of their own regime or at the hands of a community within the country against which the regime is powerless uh, or unwilling in it to act. Those individuals have the prima facie right to kill their attackers in their defense and the prima facie power to authorize potential interveners, IP, to wage war on their behalf. And that, it seems to me, is how best you to understand what it means to have a right to wage a war of intervention. It is the right that intervening parties have been given by the victims of the regime against which we are intervening in virtue of a power. <coughs> now, I stress you know, that point, perhaps you know, too much, but I think it is worth stressing because it poses the problem of consent you know, in quite a salient way, step four on your, um, on your handout. The justification which I have just given, or rather the account which I have just given for the right to wage a war of intervention, does seem to imply that the victim's consent to the intervention is required for the intervention to be just, since there can be, in general, no authorization without consent. Now, the point makes perfect sense in one-to-one -one killings if I withhold my consent to David's putative rescue move against my attacker, then David may not intervene on my behalf. And indeed, scholars who have written on humanitarian intervention quite often insist that the consent of the victims, so in the case of Libya, the consent of the civilian populations under threat at the hands of Gaddafi, their consent is required before the intervention can legitimately take place. Now, the crucial question here, it seems to me, is whether we should require explicit consent in the case of a war of intervention before <coughs> we go in, or whether presumptive consent you know, suffices. Now, it seems to me that insisting on explicit consent would be far too demanding, you know, if only because it would deprive of protection individuals who are not in a position to give their consent in the first instance. And the problem is particularly salient in humanitarian conflicts whose victims are quite often very young children, individuals who are utterly powerless and are not morally able to give or withhold consent, or indeed individuals who are subject to such severe you know, hardship that they do not have the means, physical, psychological, material, to make themselves heard. It seems natural, therefore, to claim that as long as the intervening party has good reasons to presume that victims would consent to the intervention if they were in a position to do so, then it may act as if those victims had explicitly authorized it to put a stop to the rights violations. 
the argument that I'm you know, putting forward here, and which I will have to return to later on this afternoon, um, is not in any way original at all. It's um, fairly closely mirrored um, on arguments about consent in medical ethics. It is true that we generally require the explicit consent of patients you know, before they are operated upon. But if one of you were to collapse, become unconscious at some point, and if we were to call an ambulance, and if the ambulance were to take you to the hospital, and if you were not able to regain consciousness before being weighed into the operating table, doctors would act on the presumption that you would actually sign the form consenting to the operation you know, uh, if you were in a position to do so. So, to recap briefly, um, before getting into the, as it were, nitty-gritty of killing, I have argued that victims of human rights violations at the hands of their regimes sometimes have the right to kill their attackers in self-defense and the power to transfer that right to intervening parties. But we cannot conclude that a humanitarian intervention which satisfies these conditions is justified until we have looked a little bit more deeply at the ethics of killing in humanitarian wars. Let me, as an introductory aside, you know, as it were, let me just say why I think you know, the problem is particularly important. You remember a few weeks ago we were all you know, listening to debates about you know, whether or not the intervention in media was justified. And you know, one of the, the, the features of that debate, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, was the, the squeamishness, to put it unphilosophically, um, which greeted the, subjection, the suggestion that Colonel Gaddafi might be a legitimate target in that war. Do you remember that? Some people would say, well, of course he's a legitimate target. He's the head of you know, Libyan forces, for all that we know. But other people were saying, no, you can't say that Colonel Gaddafi is a legitimate <coughs> target. It's just wrong you know, to kill those people in that very <coughs> way. Um, I didn't detect such squeamishness in the last 24 hours, incidentally, when we heard the news that Osama bin Laden you know, had been you know, killed. Uh, maybe we could talk about that later. But the, the, the fact that quite a number of people were reluctant openly to say Colonel Gaddafi, however monstrous, because this monstrous is a legitimate target. The fact that so many people were reluctant to reach that verdict suggests to me that there is something quite problematic about the act of killing in a, in a war of intervention, humanitarian intervention. I do believe, however, section three on the handout, that a great number of acts of killing are justified in such wars, beginning with killing combatants, section 3.1. Oh, and to forestall your question at the end, I do believe that under certain conditions, Colonel Gaddafi is a legitimate target you know, in that war. So I'd better you know, put my cards on the table you know, quite clearly here. But let us first look at killing uh, combatants. Now, there is an easy case, uh, which is those combatants in the target party who take part in atrocities. So the pragmatic example that I have in mind here you know, is the case of um, you know, Hutu Genocidaire, you know, which um, in 1994, not only 1994, but primarily 1994, eviscerated their victims with screwdrivers, you know, killed innocent you know, children with machetes and so on and so forth, who, in other words, committed you know, those atrocities in the context of the Rwandan genocide. I don't think there is any difficulty at all in saying that those wrongdoers clearly are liable to being killed you know, in the 
case in the course of a war of intervention. There is a harder case, turning over to page two on your handout. And this is a case of you know, combatants who do not take part in atrocities, but who resist the intervention by force. May we kill them? So you have to imagine you know, a scenario. Let's, let's take Rwanda uh, as, a, as an example of an intervention which did not take place, but perhaps should have taken place. So you have to imagine a scenario where you have you know, some Hutu militias who are carrying out you know, acts of genocide. Imagine that the UN had sent you know, some you know, forces, that those forces, as they were making their way through Rwanda, had been met with hostile fire on the part not of those genocidal militias themselves, but on the part of regular members of the Rwandan army, who were not defending, some people will argue, their genocidal colleagues, as it were, but who were defending their homeland, their homes, you know, from the intervening forces. Now, there is a rather prevalent argument in the literature, which is that a war of humanitarian intervention should really be understood like a police operation, so that intervening soldiers should exercise greater restraint vis-à-vis -vis those combatants of the target party who are regular combatants, who do not take part in the acts of genocide, than it would if that intervening party were waging a traditional war of self-defense against a wrongful aggressor. So the idea really is this. In a war of intervention, we do have to distinguish between those which commit, those who commit the atrocities which give us a reason for intervening in the first instance, and those who simply block the advance of the intervening party. Again, you know, the distinction that is drawn here is sometimes drawn in the context of the Second World War. Some people argue that there really was a difference between the Waffen-SS you know, on the one hand, those who were actually killing Jews, say on the Ukrainian in the front, and on the other hand, you know, regular members of the Wehrmacht who were not committing those atrocities, and many of whom, in fact, loathed, you know, couldn't abide, you know, the SS in you know, colleagues. I found that extremely unconvincing for three reasons. That is, I find it inconvincing to say that there is an important difference between a war of humanitarian intervention on the one hand and a traditional war of self-defense against aggression on the other hand, whereby we should exercise greater restraints against regular combatants in the former case than we normally do in, a, in the latter case. First of all, there is a requirement of restraint in traditional wars as well. In traditional wars as well, we are permitted to use only such force as is necessary for the achievement of our ends. There is no reason to distinguish in that respect between wars of humanitarian intervention on the one hand and wars of national self-defense on the other hand. Moreover, uh, ensuring that the target regime is no longer in a position to commit atrocities against its members in the future may well require a comprehensive military victory over it, and that in turn could only be secured by killing its soldiers as we would in a conventional war. And finally, those combatants, those regular combatants of the target party who admittedly are not committing atrocities but nevertheless are opposing, thwarting the intervening forces, those combatants are unjust combatants anyway. They contribute to opposing a wrongful threat to the intervening 
soldiers. So let me construct here an argument by analogy. Uh, it's the argument from the torture rape case, to put it bluntly. Imagine that a wrongdoer is torturing and raping a victim somewhere in a locked in a warehouse. Imagine further that he has posted an accomplice at the door of the warehouse so that when the police you know, shows up, weapons drawn, the accomplice starts, who is not himself taking part in the, in the rape and the torture, the accomplice starts shooting at the police in order to prevent the police from entering the warehouse. Now, I find it bizarre you know, to say that we should exercise greater restraint against the accomplice in that particular case. He's, although he's not raping the victim you know, himself, he's an accomplice in that particular rape, and he's moreover subjecting the police officers to a wrongful threat of lethal harm. He's shooting at them in order to prevent them from entering the warehouse. And it seems to me that the moral status, if you will, of regular members of a target army is similar to the moral status of the accomplice in that particular domestic case. Those combatants are liable as accomplices to those atrocities and as attackers vis-a-vis just interveners. This is all quite easy, really. It is quite easy to show, it seems to me, why those different kinds of combatants can be killed permissibly in a war of intervention. The serious difficulty arises with the issue of collateral damage, section 3.2, on your head out. I said earlier that uh, the intervening party must have good evidence that its war of intervention will be welcomed by those whom it is meant to benefit, the victims of a target regime. Now, I think that the, the claim is all the stronger for the fact that although the war will benefit many of those victims, they will also inevitably harm, indeed kill, you know, some of them. And that point highlights, I think, a very important difference between one-to-one cases of rescue killing and humanitarian war. In one-to-one cases of rescue killing, we can safely, fairly safely assume that the victim will survive the rescuers killing the attacker. But in a case of humanitarian war, many non-combatants on whose behalf and for whose sake the intervention is carried out will die as collateral damage to the intervening parties' military missions. And so any account of the right to intervene must attend to the harms which the intervening party will inevitably impose on the intervention's intended beneficiaries. And this is what I would like to talk about in the remainder of the talk. And I must first make a point of uh, clarification uh, by distinguishing between the permission to kill versus the right to kill. To say that X has the right to kill Y is to imply that Y is under a duty not to retaliate against X in his own defense. So go back to the case of the attacker earlier, who erupts in the room and starts shooting at me. To say that I have the right to kill this particular attacker in self-defense is to say not merely that you are under a duty not to interfere with me, not to prevent me from killing him, but also that he must desist immediately. 
the mere fact that I start shooting at him and in so doing threaten his own life does not give him permission to defend his own life in, in turn. That is what we mean in the relevant um, you know, literature by the right to kill in self-defense. The permission to kill is very different. When we say that X is morally permitted but lacks the right to kill Y, we imply that X is not under a duty not to retaliate. And so what we mean in this case is this. Suppose you were to say just that I may kill the attacker in my own defense, not that I have the right to do it, just that I may do it, we would imply that he's not under a duty to desist, that he may in turn defend his own life against my self-defensive move. So hold that thought for now, because it will prove important in a couple of minutes. You remember that on the account of rescue killing, which I offered earlier, the claim that there is a right you know, to intervene proceeds from the claim that victims of attackers have the right to kill in self-defense and to call for outside help. We are here imagining cases where intervening forces in the course of carrying out the intervention would end up non-intentionally, but necessarily, killing some of the civilians on whose behalf the intervention is fought. So to claim that, to ask whether interveners have the right to kill some of those victims, which I call V2, in the course of the war for the sake of other victims, V1, is tantamount to asking whether the victims of a genocidal tyrant have a right to kill fellow victims in self-defense and to call on outsiders to help as well. Suppose that we have the attacker you know, erupting into the room. He's not really shooting at me. He's shooting at several of us in the room. And suppose, I'm going to keep using David you know, as a prop you know, in my story, suppose that David, you know, who's not himself at the moment under threat, is in position to neutralize the attacker, but in so doing, he will kill some of us, inevitably. It's collateral damage to his rescue mission. To ask whether David has the right so to ask, to act, is in fact to ask whether we, who are under threat, also have the right to kill some of us as collateral damage in order to block the attacker. Suppose that I have a gun, the attacker comes into the room, the only way in which I can save my and the life of some of you is by firing at him from such an angle that others of you will die. Do I have the right in to do so. That is what we are asking. Well, we are asking whether intervening parties have the right to inflict collateral damage on some of the intended beneficiaries of the intervention. I don't think, in fact, that there is such a thing as a right to kill innocent civilians, whether deliberately or not. For to say that there is a right to kill innocent civilians is to imply that those innocent civilians themselves are under a duty not to retaliate. To say that I have a right to fire at the attacker in such a way that some of you will die is to say that those of you who will die in the process are under a duty not to protect your life in the course of the attack. And that, I think, is wrong. I pointed out at the very, very beginning of the talk that there are 
grounds upon which you know we are permitted to give greater interest, greater weight to our interests than to the interests of others. And it seems to me that it would be an unacceptably demanding thing to ask of people, innocent people, that they sacrifice their lives for the sake of other innocent people. What I do believe, however, is that victims are sometimes justified or permitted to act in such a way that other innocent people will die in the course of their self-defensive move. For the same reason that I've just highlighted, to claim otherwise is to claim that those victims are under a duty to sacrifice their lives for the sake of other victims. Here is the picture that I have in mind here. It seems to me that innocent people sometimes are justified to act in such a way as to kill, foreseeably, though not intentionally, other innocent people at the bar of partiality, at the bar of the thought, if you will, that we sometimes are generally permitted to confer greater weight on our interests, particularly our interest in survival, than on other people's you know, similar you know, interests. Let us assume that this is so one set of victims. By parity of reasoning, it is also the case of another set of victims. In other words, uh, let's go back to Libya, for example, um, as an example. If it is indeed the case that a set of victims of Colonel Gaddafi and his regime are permitted to kill collaterally other victims in defense of their own life in the course of 